Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. The Greek Bronze Age, Origins and Collapse, by Brendan Burke. When does history begin? According to tradition, the date is 776 BCE, when a man named Coroibus won the first foot race at Olympia. Greek prehistory, in contrast, refers to the time before this date. Everything before 776 BCE? This is quite vague. It includes the time of the earliest humans who were seasonal hunters and gatherers, the earliest settled communities of farmers and shepherds during the Neolithic period, beginning around 7000 BCE, and continues with the rise of Minoan culture on the island of Crete during the Middle Bronze Age, circa 1900 BCE, and the rise of the Mycenaeans on the Greek mainland in the Late Bronze Age, 1700 BCE. Finally, it ends with the collapse of Mycenaean civilization around 1050 BCE. Later Greeks were fascinated by their past, but they did not have written records before 776 BCE, and they lacked the methods and techniques of archaeology to inform their understanding of prehistory. They populated their landscape of memory with oral stories of heroic figures, legendary kings like Minos at Gnosis, who built his labyrinth on Crete to house the half-bull, half-man creature, the Minotaur, and Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, who led the Greek troops overseas for the Trojan War. These stories have their origin in what today we call the Late Bronze Age, primarily dating to the last half of the second millennium BCE, circa 1600 to 1100 BCE. Aspects of this age are preserved, although somewhat distorted, in the earliest literature of ancient Greece, the Homeric poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. For example, in the poems, the Greeks use bronze weapons and wear boar tusk helmets. Weapons and armor from the period of Homeric epic, circa 800 BCE, were quite different from this. The poet recalls ancient equipment appropriate to the Bronze Age Mycenaeans. Greeks created legends and poems about their distant past by relying on a collective cultural memory. This reconstituted past reflects some accurate aspects of the prehistoric Greek world, but it is important that we distinguish myth and fiction from a more accurate view of the Greek Bronze Age based on modern archaeology and a critical analysis of literary texts, visual materials, and cultural artifacts. The mythical age of Homeric heroes is no more real than the Arthurian world of Camelot. Separating truth from friction for Greece's earliest history has been a challenging task for classical scholars and archaeologists since the 19th century. Introduction We will look only briefly at the Stone Age and the early Bronze Age of Greece, which covers almost 300,000 years, since detailed information about people and events are lacking. The primary focus of this unit is the second millennium BCE, the 1,000-year period that is well-preserved in the archaeological record and is an active field of research and teaching. The period is sometimes referred to as the Minoan and Mycenaean Ages. 
The Minoans of Crete emerged around 200 BCE and the Mycenaean Greeks of mainland Greece around 1700 BCE. The First Greeks The Greek Stone Age began roughly 2.5 million years ago and lasted until the Neolithic period, from 7000 to 3200 BCE. There are further subdivisions of these periods, and dates differ depending on the areas under discussion, but this chronological outline reflects the general consensus. Society changed greatly over this long time span, when humans went from being migratory hunters and gatherers to becoming seasonal cave dwellers, and then living as settled agriculturists, farmers and shepherds, and building permanent communities with diversified activities such as making stone tools, firing clay vessels, and weaving textiles. The most complete set of data for the earliest inhabitants of Greece comes from Franchithi Cave in the southern Peloponnese, the longest occupied site in Greece, spanning about 20,000 years of history. Franchithi Cave was excavated between 1967 and 1976 by American archaeologists who imported techniques called New Archaeology from North American anthropologists. This kind of archaeological research employed scientific methods such as radiocarbon dating, which can be done on anything that was once alive by measuring the ratio of carbon-14, or radiocarbon, a radioactive isotope of carbon, which decays at a constant rate. Franchithi Cave was occupied for over 20,000 years until the beginning of the Bronze Age, 3000 BCE. New archaeology also focused on questions of diet and resource exploitation. A system of soil flotation at Franchithi Cave used 10 kilogram samples of excavated earth taken from specific stratigraphic layers. The soil was poured into a barrel drum partly filled with churning water, which causes charcoal, seeds, and small bones, like fish, bird, and other animals, to float to the surface. By taking counts and percentages of plant and animal species in each sample, archaeologists were able to document major changes in diet and in the paleoenvironment. The Neolithic period marked significant changes in the early prehistory of the Greek world, and many firsts are found at Franchithi Cave. While newer research may challenge the notion that Franchithi Cave truly has the earliest X, early domesticated sheep and goats, domesticated cereals such as barley and wheat, and polished stone tools, including axes for clearing land, were documented from the excavations. Some of the earliest fired clay vessels, pottery and figurines, also occur at Franchithi. In addition, the cave houses some of the earliest human burials in Greece. These include several early Neolithic child burials. Most are simple with no grave goods, but one contained half of an early fired clay pot and a marble vessel, a veritable treasure for such an early date. One of the earliest adults from the Middle Neolithic period was a 39-year-old woman with whom an early fired clay pot and bone tools, likely for ceramic production, were found. It may be that the first potter in Greece was a woman. All other Neolithic sites especially in the flat, fertile plains of Thessaly, we find the earliest examples of built architecture, demonstrating that people were living together in organized communities, sometimes enclosed within fortification walls. Key sites include Sesclo and Dimini. Some archaeologists 
have idealized the Neolithic period and have tried to suggest that it was during this age that Greece had a utopian egalitarian society, perhaps dominated by the cult of a mother, mother goddess based on the figurines. Unfortunately, interpretations like this more often reflect the ideologies and politics of the modern archaeologists involved rather than relying on close scrutiny of the evidence. While female figurines have received a great deal of attention, the presence of male figurines has not. In truth, it is difficult, if not next to impossible, to know people's political and religious beliefs from archaeological evidence alone. Early and Middle Hellatic Greece During the Early Bronze Age, circa 3000 to 2000 BCE, significant sites are found on the mainland of Greece at Lerna and Tyrus, Crete, Knossos, Myrtos Forno, Corifi, and Vesaliki. The Cycladic Islands, Melos, Naxos, and Syros, and the Ionian coast in western Turkey, Troy. At several early Bronze Age sites, we see a significant amount of gold and evidence of prosperity, giving rise to what is known as the Golden Horizon, a period of wealth that does not continue into the Middle Helladic period. The early Cycladic period is also the age of the Cycladic figurines schematically carved human images that were usually made from island marble and likely were meant as grave goods. We also have evidence for complex societies as demonstrated by large administrative centers like the House of the Tiles at Lerna in the Peloponnese. The territory around Lerna is naturally quite swampy but with drainage. The area becomes quite fertile as it is today and was likely in the Bronze Age. The challenging nature of the watery landscape may have partly inspired the myth of the Lernian Hydra, a multi-headed water serpent killed in one of Heracles' twelve labors. The most important discovery at the archaeological site of Lerna from the early Bronze Age is a large corridor house, a 12 by 25 meter freestanding structure with a series of rectangular rooms that are flanked on the long sides by corridors some of which contain stairwells to a second story. The structure is regularly referred to as the House of the Tiles on account of the terracotta tiles used in its roof construction. Most buildings of this type were roofed with tiles, usually of terracotta, making them permanent and monumental. The building's large scale and central placement suggests it was the main structure of the community and, as such, was the locus for control and administration of the agricultural resources. Although no writing was preserved, we can see a fairly sophisticated administration system based on the clay impressions from seal stones that were found. In one room alone, 174 different sealings from 70 different seals were discovered. These seals originally covered liquid containers, probably holding wine and oil stored in the room above. These products may have been a yearly or monthly contribution, like a tax, from the inhabitants in the surrounding territory. How a center like Lerna arose, and why it did not continue beyond the end of the 3rd millennium BCE, are questions that many scholars have attempted to answer. There does not seem to be a continuity of culture from the early to middle Bronze Age in the Aegean, from the 3rd to 2nd millennium BCE. It is possible new arrivals began the next formative period in Greece's prehistory, around 2000 BCE, leading to the civilizations of the Minoans and the Mycenaeans.
Middle Bronze Age. On mainland Greece, by 2000 BCE, settlements were fewer and smaller in comparison to the early Bronze Age. Most sites of the Middle Helladic are not very impressive, but Colonna, on the island of Aegina, is the exception that proves the rule. This fortified site provides a preview of the Mycenaeans who emerged at the end of this period. A forerunner of elite Mycenaean burial was a grave at Colonna with a distinguished individual in a shaft grave dating to the Middle Helladic II. The adult male had a panoply of bronze weapons, a dagger, a sword, a spear, a helmet of boar's tusks, obsidian arrowheads, a gold headdress, and imported pottery from the Cyclades and Crete. The tomb type and new custom of wealthy grave goods indicates a special, elite individual. Within a few generations, equally elaborate burials occur at the site of Mycenae, allowing us to create a link between the Middle Helladic II people of Aegina and the early Mycenaeans. Inventing the Minoans and Mycenaeans as early as the 1820s, scholars were referring to the Minoan Age in reference to life on the island of Crete during the early to mid-2nd millennium BCE, under the reign of the legendary King Minos. This term is still with us today to refer to the archaeology of Bronze Age Crete. On the mainland of Greece, the world described in Homeric epic centered around the home of King Agamemnon, ruler of Mycenae in the Peloponnese. Heinrich Schliemann, a wealthy amateur archaeologist in the late 19th century, named the late Bronze Age people of mainland Greece and their culture Mycenaean. Ever since, scholars have used these made-up modern terms, Minoans and Mycenaeans, as a shorthand way to refer to the people of the second millennium in this region. Schliemann accumulated a personal fortune over his lifetime and was an autodidactic or self-taught with an obsessive interest in the world of Homeric epic and early Greece. Guided by the epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, he began excavations of the site of Hisselric in modern Turkey in 1871, the site we now call Ancient Troy. Soon after, he began excavations at the site identified as Mycenae since Roman times, and he worked elsewhere in Greece as well. While Homeric heroes were believed to be from a literary mythical past, Schliemann's work revealed that there was some truth to the age of heroes, but his methods of exploration were not without problems. One of the earliest principles for field archaeologists is that the oldest material is found in the lowest layers. At Hisselrich Troy, Schliemann worked at first collaboratively with the Turkish-based British diplomat Frank Calvert to uncover multiple layers of prehistoric material. Wanting to test the theory that Hisselrich was indeed the site of the Iliad's Troy, Schliemann dug a very large, deep, great trench through the mound, mistakenly believing that the oldest, deepest layers would be the Troy of Homeric epic and the Trojan War. What they uncovered was truly impressive, a fortified site enclosing typical Megaron structures. A Megaron, in contrast to the corridor house type, is a large building entered from the front with a columned porch leading to a central room, usually containing a hearth. Near the entrance to the citadel at Troy, Schliemann reports that he found a concentration of gold and silver objects that he nicknamed Priam's treasure after the legendary king Priam of Troy in the Iliad. 
His wife, Sophia Schliemann, famously modeled the jewelry. The hoard of valuables, however, may have been assembled from different contexts, according to Schliemann's critics. What is more, Priam's treasure dates to about 2500 BCE, the early Bronze Age. Schliemann had discovered a great culture, early Bronze Age Troy, but it did not fit what we know of Homeric Troy. His great trench cut through many different chronological levels, including late Bronze Age ones, and succeeding archaeologists have shown that fiery destructions perhaps indicated some kind of Trojan War, although this conclusion is still disputed. After starting excavations at Troy, Schliemann came to Greece to explore the site of Mycenae. Relying on another ancient literary source, the Roman traveler Pausanias of the mid-2nd century CE, who said that the early kings of Mycenae were buried inside the walls of the city, Schliemann dug just beyond the Great Lion Gate, a monumental entrance visible in the landscape since antiquity. Although most thought Pausanias' description was mistaken, because no Greek would bury their dead inside the walls of the city, the possibility had not been considered that ancient inhabitants buried their dead in a cemetery before the walls and Lion Gate at Mycenae were constructed. In 1875, Schliemann found a low stone encircled mound, 27 meters in diameter, just inside the gate. Stone stelia, carved slabs, some with heroic themed scenes, were displaced in the mound fill, but were clearly burial markers. Below these, Schliemann made arguably the most spectacular and important archaeological discovery ever in Greece. Five royal shaft graves. A sixth was dug by a Greek archaeologist, P. Somaticus, in what we now call Grave Circle A. The shaft grave type of Mycenae burial is defined as a large, deep shaft cut into bedrock that is used for multiple burials over several generations during the early Mycenaean period. The shaft graves at Mycenae had between two to five individuals in each tomb, most dating to the 17th century BCE. This discovery at Mycenae not only yielded huge amounts of gold from the tombs, about 14 kilograms from one tomb alone, and wealthy burial goods imported from all over the Mediterranean, it also proved the existence of a complex culture. From Grave Circle A, approximately 17 individuals were found, 15 adults, one sub-adult, and an infant. These individuals were inhumed, not cremated, but the bones were in poor condition when excavated in 1876, and they have since deteriorated further. Most of the adults died relatively young by modern standards, between 20 and 30 years old. Outside the fortification walls at Mycenae, Circle Grave B was discovered in 1951 by Greek archaeologists working to expand the site as a tourist destination. This area started as a cemetery about 1750 BCE, earlier than Grave Circle A, which likely was a breakaway family. The tombs also had impressive grave goods, but not quite as wealthy as Grave Circle A. Mycenaean art and artifacts from both grave circles include daggers, swords with elaborate pommels and inlaid imagery. The material shows an emphasis on warfare, weapons, and hunting, lion hunts, waterfowl being hunted, in their decoration, which has caused some scholars to characterize the Mycenaeans as belligerent and brutal, 
especially in comparison to the art of Minoan Crete. We should be careful with generalizations such as this, though, because, as stated above, the terms Minoan and Mycenaean are modern creations. What is not in dispute, however, is that the burials and the grave goods from Mycenae reveal the people and culture that had previously been unknown in Greece. The Mycenaeans were born. While Schliemann was excavating the grave circle at Mycenae on Crete, a local businessman and archaeologist, Minos Kalakernos, discovered impressive storage vessels at Kefala Hill, a site located about nine kilometers from Crete's main city, Heraklion, then called Candia. Kalokernos' work convinced Arthur Evans, a British aristocrat and academic at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, to start major excavations in what he called the Palace of Minos at Knossos. Evans conjured the first Europeans in his mind as a people earlier than and different from Schliemann's warrior Mycenaeans of mainland Greece. The Minoans inhabited the unfortified Palace of Minos at Knossos in a beautiful Mediterranean landscape, close to a natural spring nestled between mountains, safely distant from the sea. The palace had beautiful wall paintings with prominent themes of nature, sea life, and courtly processions. Biographers have suggested that Evans's view of the Minoans was well suited to his Victorian sensibilities and that the peaceful Minoan world he envisioned was overly utopian and acted as a salve from the horrors of early 20th century wars. Upon Evans' death in 1941, the British School at Athens inherited his research project at Knossos and work there continues to this day. Palaces of Crete Crete is at the crossroads of the Mediterranean between North Africa, Egypt, Anatolia, and the Greek mainland. Although King Minos seemed a legendary figure and the Minoans are a modern construct, a powerful elite resided in the multi-room labyrinth at Knossos. Later Romans knew the myth of the labyrinth, the maze-like structure where the monstrous Minotaur was housed and reproduced it on their coins. Scholars today believe the name labyrinth means place of the double axe, from labyrinth, a word originally from Anatolia. Archaeologists speak of Minoan palaces, but this term is also a product of the Victorian age. Alternatives have been suggested, megastructure, court-centered buildings, but none have stuck. Used with caution, we can say that a Minoan palace was a center of political, religious, and economic power of Crete. How many Minoan palaces were there? The most commonly accepted palaces on Crete are Knossos, Phaistos, Malia, Katozakros, and Gurnia. Newer sites have been identified at Petrus, Zomenthos, Arcanes, and Sisi, but scholars continue to debate their status as palaces. The typical Minoan palace had walls of large sawn ashlar blocks, downward tapering columns, light wells, monumental stairways, and major public rooms on upper floors. Most had western courtyards with raised walkways leading to a southern entrance to the central court, around which rooms radiated. The central courts were rectangular open spaces with paved surfaces and were oriented north to south to provide a palace for performances and assembly. Some have suggested that the courts were used for jumping bulls, an activity often depicted in wall paintings and other forms of art, 
but this too was debated. Storage, a key aspect of the palaces, was often concentrated in long, narrow halls called magazines, often located on the west side of the palaces. As a visitor entered through the west court, they likely would have been aware of the palace's wealth in the nearby storerooms. Above the magazines were larger public rooms or halls, perhaps for communal dining and feasting. On the eastern side, generally, we envisioned domestic areas, perhaps for the ruling dynasty, family, and retinue. There was extensive plumbing, impressive column supported stairwells, and elaborate fresco panels on the walls and floors. Excavations of the palaces on Crete revealed unique forms and constructions, the use of which are not fully understood. Some of these unique Minoan architectural forms were first found at Knossos and have unfortunate names, reflecting Evans's aristocratic background and religious imaginings. For example, the horns of consecration, lustral basins, and pillar crypts, to name just a few. Other names, like the Piano Nobile, Villas or the keep are anachronistic, derived from European royalty. Their original functions are open to debate. Explaining the emergence of Aegean civilization. Where do the palaces come from? The expression ex oriente lux, light from the east, was in previous generations the standard interpretation for how Greek civilization came to be. Colin Renfrew of Cambridge University theorized in 1972 that the stratified societies of the Middle and Late Bronze Age Aegean, the complex administrative centers at Knossos and Mycenae, for example, had their foundations in early Bronze Age Greece. He based his emergence model on the ancient economy and was looking to explain Greek civilization without seeing it as an import. The system proposed by Renfrew took account of multiple factors, including climate, technologies, species of plants exploited, and chance, among others, all feeding back positively or negatively to explain why some sites and individuals thrived and eventually became great powers and others did not. Renfrew's redistributive model suggests that by the end of the Neolithic period, farmers mainly exploited the Mediterranean triad cereal grains, olives, and grapes. Lower and flatter land was suited to cereals, while more mountainous terrain with thinner soil cover was used for the cultivating olives and vines. With successful agricultural, Renfrew posits that redistributive chiefs emerged at the local level to administer the specialized products from different farmers and to coordinate storage facilities prior to redistribution. Administrative records and archives, focusing primarily on agricultural goods, also support this model of agricultural surplus. With stored agriculture, a labor force of craftspeople could emerge which devised strategies for producing better, more valuable goods, perhaps accruing an even greater advantage over any subsistence-focused neighbors. This would quickly foster an accumulation of wealth and an increase in specialized production for exchange giving rise to elites. Minoan and Mycenaean Religion Arthur Evans was criticized for over-idealizing his Minoans as peaceful, harmonious nature lovers who had a religion focused on a female mother goddess. This picture of Minoans and their religion is often in opposition to a generic picture of the Mycenaeans as belligerent, 
militaristic imperialists who worship early forms of the traditional Greek pantheon, with Zeus as a male weather god, Athena as a warrior goddess, and Poseidon as the god of horses, earthquakes, and the sea. While scholars have debated how peaceful the Minoans were, and finds of Minoan weapons suggest they were not complete pacifists, their religion will be better understood once the linear A script is deciphered. What we can say is that Minoan cult sites have been located on mountaintops where burnt offerings were made and figurines like animals, often sheep and cows, and people in poses of prayer were left. There are also small libation tables, which are sometimes inscribed, and rounded receptacles that may have received offerings of grain, suggesting fertility was a concern at these religious sites. By the latter Minoan period, cults were also located in settlements and palaces. The prominent role given to bulls, double axes, and processions, as seen in Minoan art, give us some indication of what was important to the Minoans, but the full meaning of these images is difficult to decipher. For the Mycenaeans, fortunately, we have texts written in Linear B that preserve information about their religion. Several references to the Mycenaean goddess named Potnia occur, indicating her various aspects. Lady of Wild Animals, Lady of Grain, Lady of Athens or Athena. It is unclear which. Names of other Mycenaean divinities recognizable from latter Greek religion are found as well, including early references to Zeus, Poseidon, Ares, and Dionysus. Mycenaean religion seems to have been inextricably linked to the Mycenaean economy, at least as far as the references in the Linear B tablets are concerned. Sanctuaries and cult officials owned property. Manufactured items were often dedicated to the Mycenaean gods on behalf of Mycenaean authorities. As inventory lists, however, the tablets do not inform us about rituals and beliefs. Minoans and Mycenaeans Abroad Contrary to Renfrew's original suggestion of self-sufficiency for the people of the Aegean, scholars no longer discount fully the role of their eastern Mediterranean neighbors. The sites of Mari and Ebla in modern Syria show similar features found in Minoan palaces at the beginning of the second millennium BCE, and suggests there was some eastern inspiration, if not influence, upon the earliest Minoan palaces in both form and function. Minoan and Mycenaean cultures had a great deal of interaction with peoples of the eastern Mediterranean, including the Egyptians, the Hittites of central Anatolia, which is modern Turkey, and the Levantine peoples. References to a people called Ahayawa in Hittite texts likely correspond to the Achaeans, one of the names of Homeric epic to refer to the mainland Greeks. In tombs of Egyptian nobles, dated the second half of the 15th century BCE, tribute bearers labeled with the name Keftu have been found. The name refers to the ambassadors from the isles in the midst of the Great Green Sea, recognized today as Crete and the Aegean. These individuals bore gifts and wore garments characteristic of the Middle and Late Bronze Age Aegean, although their representation in the tombs is clearly Egyptian in style and execution. In one tomb, that of Rekmar, dating to the mid-15th BCE, the costumes of specific figures were repainted, changing from the Minoan-style breechcloths with cod pieces and backflaps into Mycenaean-style kilts. 
There is a chronological significance to this change. This period coincides with major destructions on Crete and late Minoan and marks the beginning of Mycenaean participation in overseas trade. Does the change from a Minoan loincloth to a more Mycenaean kilt on the Theban tomb document a broader change in economic influence in the Aegean? It is possible. While the origin of the Aegeans, or Keftu, in the Theban tombs is debated, the ambassadors from the isles in the midst of the Great Green Sea most likely traded with the Egyptians for resources they lacked on Crete and the mainland, in particular, precious metals. We might assume that higher status was achieved and greater wealth acquired by the Aegean elites controlling these ventures. The Minoans were most likely in regular contact with the Near East as early as the second millennium BCE and traded agricultural goods, manufactured metal tools, vessels with oil, wine, and possibly perfume, and dyed textiles. The Minoans extracted a highly valuable dye from sea snails to produce a vibrant, color-fast purple dye. In addition to the material exchange between the Aegean and the Near East, we might also imagine an exchange of ideas involving concepts of rulership, how to be a king, and economic administration, how to run a palace. Echoes of Minoan and Mycenaean changing fortunes can be found in later Greek literature and art, beginning with the Homeric poems and continuing into tragedy and later classical literature. For example, the popular story of the Athenian hero Theseus sailing to Crete to kill the Minotaur, the half-man, half-bull creature housed in the labyrinths of Kiminos and Knossos, could be a mythical memory of mainland Mycenaeans arriving on Crete, seen in the archaeology of Crete from around 1400 BCE. After the destructions of the LMIB period, new cultural features are found on Crete, such as chamber tombs, tholos tombs, and mainland Greek pottery. This evidence suggests that Mycenaeans either caused the destructions or they supported a stratum of ruling elites centered at Kenosis, who established control over the island, since Kenosis seems not to have been destroyed. Whatever the cause of the destructions after this period, we can safely say the Minoan palace period is over. Knossos continued to function as a major administrative center, but as a Mycenaean palace, most clearly evidenced by the 4,000-plus Mycenaean Greek Linear B tablets found there. Mycenaean Greece The Mycenaeans employed and traded extensively with Minoan craftspeople, especially those skilled in working precious metals, such as silver and gold. This is perhaps best exemplified by the famous Vafio cups found outside a large round tomb called a tholos near Sparta. The two gold cups are made in contrasting styles. Both show men and bulls, but one can be read as more thoughtful, peaceful, and less energetic, perhaps Minoan, in character. The other has a framing border, shows a vigorous encounter between men and bulls, and one man is perhaps being gored by a bull, perhaps Mycenaean. Taking account of chronology, we might say the early Mycenaeans, as defined by material culture, 
were probably more similar to the Minoans of Crete than they were to their late descendants at palaces such as Pylos or Mycenae 200 years later. At around 1390 BCE, Mycenaeans of the Greek mainland began to play a dominant role in the Aegean. The mainland of Greece was their heartland, and palaces have been excavated at Mycenae, Tyrnus, Thebes, and Pylos in addition to Knossos. Probably there was a palace on the Athenian Acropolis, at Agios Phasileos near Sparta, or at Orchomenos at Boeotia. Major Mycenaean sites with palatial features are known at Tychios Dimion at Achaea, Gla at Boeotia, and even as far north as Ioklos near Volos. Their Tholos tombs and fortified palaces dominate the landscape of prehistoric Greece. The Palace of Nestor at Pylos, in the southwestern Peloponnese in Messenia, is in some ways our best example of a Mycenaean palace. But one should not expect all palaces to have the same form and function. In comparison to other Mycenaean centers, Pylos is not significantly fortified. Very exciting ongoing excavations at Pylos are revealing remains from the early Mycenaean phase, including burials in large stone-built circular tombs and the wealthy burials of a 14th century BCE warrior called the Griffin Warrior by the excavators. This burial contains the remains of a young man with gold rings, elaborate jewelry, and bronze weapons. Detailed analysis of these finds has suggested a connection between Pylos and the Minoans of Crete. Many of the rooms at the Palace of Nestor were painted with figural wall paintings. By reading these images in the context of the architecture, we can understand room use and try to reconstruct actions in the rooms. Leading into the main Megaron chamber, we see males carrying chests and pillow-like things on their shoulders. A woman leads a bull that is two times life-size in the same direction. Other figures may be priests and acolytes wearing special costumes. In the large Megaron hall, a fresco-painted floor with panels gave the room a multicolor vibrance. Fragments of a chimney were found showing that the four columns around the hearth held a roof that allowed the smoke to escape. The throne was on the visitor's right, as was also a Tyrant's, and likely Mycenae. Below the throne was a kind of libation channel, perhaps for water, wine, and or oil. In the corner, a lyre or harp player is painted sitting on stylized rocks. A large white bird flies up to the heavens. Presumably, near this painted harpist, a real bard would sing as people marched in towards the enthroned king seated before the calmed hearth, a scene not unlike something found in the great halls of Homeric kings, such as Nestor himself. In the surrounding rooms, we can reconstruct some of the communal activities that likely happened at Pylos, perhaps following an agricultural calendar. Side rooms we might call pantries contain drinking cups and storage vessels. In the so-called pantry, 2,850 calyxes for drinking were found among 6,000 vases altogether. At least 33 jars contained oil. Linear B tablets from Pylos show that olive oil was a vital part of the economy in addition to a vital source of calories. It also could have been scented with flowers and fragrant herbs as part of a successful Mycenaean perfume industry. 
the drinking cup suggests many people gathered for ceremonies. The palace of Nestor was destroyed by fire, either by accident or intentionally, at the end of the late Helladic period, around 1180 BCE. This fire, somewhat fortunately for us, preserved nearly 1,100 clay tablets with temporary records of the palace written in the Linear B script. In their original use, the tablets were unfired and only meant as a short-term record. Many of the Linear B tablets from Pelos were found stored in their original context, so the groups of tablets can be understood together to refer to common activities like perfume oil production, linen harvesting, textile workers. The number of tablets from Pelos, about 1,100, are second in number only to Knossos. Thebes in central Greece has about 400 tablets, and Mycenae has about 70. Tyrans, Chania, and Medea also have evidence of Linear B. Recent finds from the sites of Eclania near Pelos show that non-palace centers could also have tablets. The most exciting find of late comes from ongoing excavations near Sparta at Agios Fisilios, where several dozen of new Mycenaean tablets are currently being excavated and studied. End of the Bronze Age Previous generations of scholars looked at the end of the Bronze Age as a fairly single event, while the archaeology suggests to us that the end was a long time coming. During the 13th century BCE, Construction projects of the Mycenaean palaces included massive stone fortifications built with boulders so large that later people thought only the race of giant cyclopses could have constructed them, hence the term cyclopean masonry, and water access points in case of siege. The fire destructions that preserved the tablets at Pelos occurred in the 12th century, but life at some Mycenaean sites did continue as late as the 11th century. Deconstructions in Athens and on some of the Cycladic islands are disputed. So the question is, why some sites are destroyed and others not at all? The study of collapse is of general interest in archaeology today. It is the backside of the study of origins. And as we saw with Renfrew's model and others for the emergence of complex societies in the Aegean, there are competing views to explain how they collapsed as well. One small glitch, such as trade disruption or climate disasters, can become magnified in complex systems over a long period. It is also important for archaeologists to distinguish between causes and effects. If we find physical evidence for destructions, usually fire, and abandonments at sites, we need to ask whether there were signs of decline before these destructions. Did the Mycenaean economy and social system collapse before or along with the physical destructions of their palaces or perhaps after? A commonly cited explanation for the destructions at Mycenaean sites, especially the citadel of Mycenae itself, which was destroyed by fire in LH3B2, is that the fire was caused by a huge earthquake that also destroyed the palace at Tiras nearby. One should ask, however, why an earthquake would cause extensive fires in the ancient world. Today, earthquakes break glass lines and thus cause explosions and fires. But in antiquity, this would not have been an issue. At some sites, 
Before the end, we see evidence suggesting the Mycenaeans knew of an external threat. Mycenae built fortification walls and secured an underground water supply. Tiran's walls were improved and a lower town was built, increasing storage and securing an underground water supply. At Athens, the Acropolis was fortified and its water supply improved. A large wall was begun, but never finished near the Isthmus of Corinth. One Linear B tablet at Pylos refers to large numbers of men thought to be rowers from different parts of the kingdom being sent up the north coast. Perhaps they were expecting an invasion. Ancient authors speak of a Dorian invasion from the north, but this is being fully discounted as an explanation based on the complete absence of Dorians in the archaeological record. The fiction of a Dorian invasion, however, should not fully discount the role of external forces acting on Greece. The Sea Peoples are a mysterious group of peoples mentioned in Egyptian records from around 1225 to 1177 BCE. Ramses III refers to 10,000 Sea People, including women, children, and wagons. Captured Sea Peoples were perhaps used by Ramses II in the Battle of Kadesh in 1278 BCE. Egyptians repelled these invaders from their shores, while the Hittites, Trojans, Cypriots, and Levantine dwellers were destroyed by them. The problem for historians with the Sea Peoples is that they did not come only by sea, and they are not thought to have been a united people. Among the names Sea Peoples are possible references to Danans and Achaeans of Homeric epic, as well as similar sounding names to Sardinians, Sicilians, and Philistines. Additional theories to explain the end of the Bronze Age include new weapons and technology, including the use of iron. Iron, however, was not used extensively until 100 years after the collapse, and it should be noted that iron is not as strong as bronze. It was simply more readily available in the Aegean than the sources for bronze, imported copper and tin or arsenic. Another theory explaining the end of the Bronze Age is that there was a change from chariot fighting to light-armed infantry and javelin throwing, against which chariots were ineffective. A major drought certainly would have affected agriculture. Three rings from Anatolia suggest this possibility, which would also explain why the Hittites were weakened as well. Perhaps economic problems, such as trade being disrupted by migrations, climatic problems, or earthquakes are to blame. In fact, the relatively sudden, extensive, and thorough eradication of Mycenaean civilization is likely to have been caused by a combination of factors. Unfortunately, we saw with theories that try to explain the origins of Aegean civilization, a single satisfactory theory that addresses all the questions inherent in the Mycenaean collapse does not exist, and a combination of factors is likely the best explanation. Summary. This chapter looked at the beginning of human activity and civilization in Greece, from the Stone Age through the end of the Bronze Age. It covers thousands of years and discusses major changes, such as humans transitioning from seasonal hunters and gatherers to settled agriculturalists. Various theories for why large administrative centers emerged in Greece during the early Bronze Age, giving rise to the Minoan palaces on Crete and the Mycenaean centers on the mainland, were discussed. 
beginning with the seminal work of Colin Renfrew. The origins, form, and function of the Minoan and Mycenaean palaces were also discussed. Canossus and Pylos were taken as type sites. Linear B evidence was discussed, as well as various theories used to explain the end of the Bronze Age. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.